Welcome everyone to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Because you won't find us on Google or Facebook, we respect your privacy and will continue to fight the Silicon Valley censorship. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone, this is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health and today we're going to discuss a therapy you've probably heard about before but is widely underutilized. It's hyperbaric oxygen therapy and here with me to discuss that fascinating topic is Dr. Jason Saunders who's been doing this for about a decade. So welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thank you Dr. Mercola, I'm happy to be here and uh, I love to share information on hyperbaric oxygen. So Yeah, well why don't we start explaining what it is uh, because many people have heard of it and uh, then there's a lot of details to dive deep into to help people further understand it because there's a wide variety of applications but my guess is almost everyone watching this would benefit it from it on a regular basis uh, if they're interested in optimizing longevity but even if they're not for the treatment of certain conditions which you'll discuss I mean, there's incredible bonuses for it and uh, benefits, and and it's a great alternative to some of the really challenging interventions that are used or typically used for uh, common problems that are loaded with side effects and are relatively ineffective because they're not treated the cause. So why don't right. you start diving deep? Sure. I mean, on its most basic premise, hyperbaric oxygen is literally the application of breathing either air or oxygen under pressure. And so you're inside some type of you know, pressurized device, a hyperbaric chamber, and uh, due to the pressure, you're exposing the body to a higher percentage of oxygen. You could also increase that oxygen by piping oxygen into the chambers. Um, and as a result of that environment, you're increasing the body's capacity to absorb more oxygen than what you and I can get you know, here at one atmosphere, you know, having this conversation. Yeah, and a real simple way to explain that is the pulse oximeter, which measures the oxygen saturation in your hemoglobin. And if you're healthy, it's probably 98 or 99%. And so that means you really can't shove a lot more oxygen on the hemoglobin molecule, <laughs> like one or 2% more. Exactly. So why don't you explain how the increased pressure of oxygen supplies more oxygen to your tissues. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, the, the most, that's a, that's a great example is the pulse oximeter. And so basically if you have no longer heart condition, you know, most of us are carrying about all the oxygen we possibly can 96, 97, 98%, which means you only have the capacity to carry about two or three more percent. Let's say we had a green tank and a mask. You could fill that void. A green tank is an oxygen cylinder for those. I'm sorry. A green tank is an oxygen oh, cylinder. Right, yeah, exactly. So if you had a you know, medical grade oxygen and you were breathing that indirectly, you could fill that two or 3% and that's about it. There's, there's literally no way to increase oxygen beyond that 100% is 100% um, unless you're under pressure. Uh, being under pressure, there's, there's two main laws that, there's a few more, but there's two main laws that govern how that works. It's Boyle's law and Henry's law. So basically it just says, as you take a gas and you exert a pressure on it, you can make the size of that gas take up less space. And then as a result of that pressure, you can then dissolve that gas into a liquid. Um, an easy example is like a can of seltzer. So they're using carbon dioxide and water, but basically you can, you can pressurize that can. So you can put carbon dioxide into that can. And as a result of that pressurization, you can dissolve molecules of carbon dioxide into the water. Well, in the hyperbaric version of that, we're using oxygen and the can is the chamber, but as a result of dumping excess oxygen inside that chamber, you can dissolve that into the liquid of our body, which for us is, the, it's directly into the tissue and it's into the plasma of our blood. So normally our blood does not carry oxygen. We rely wholly on red blood cell carrying capacity, but inside the chamber, you could, you could literally bypass the red blood cell carrying capacity altogether, and you could you could absorb oxygen directly into the tissue. 
So thank you for explaining that, but people are likely wondering, well, why? Why do I want more oxygen in my tissue? That's a great question. So, you know, my background is uh, I've done a lot of functional medicine and nutrition in my life. So I look at this primarily as a nutrient, you know, so, I mean, and you know, just as well as anybody, you know, we can go days, weeks, we can even go months without food. You know, we can go a couple of days without water, but we can only, we can't barely go a few minutes without oxygen. And we need about a hundred percent of the oxygen that we're capable of carrying every minute of every day just to perform normal functions. So there's very little room for creating an excess of oxygen for the sake of healing or helping some of the conditions that we'll talk about later on. And so the way I look at it is, is nutritionally, let's say vitamin C. If, if you didn't get enough vitamin C, you'd have a deficiency. We call that scurvy. And so there's consequences to having a deficiency in vitamin C. Likewise, there's an optimum range of vitamin C that you would try to get every day just to make sure that you have enough to perform all the tasks that you're going to ask vitamin C to do inside your body every day. And then there's a, there's a, a period that you might choose to megadose vitamin C, maybe if you had a cold or if you were doing IV vitamin C drips. And so there's basically in nutrition, there's deficiency, which has consequences. There's optimum range, which is allowing us to do what we need to do every day. And then there's periods where we need a surplus of that nutrient to help us deal with some issue that we're having in our health or in our life. So I look at oxygen the same way. If you're not getting enough oxygen, whether that's globally because of a lung or heart issue, or if that's locally because of a, a trauma like a TBI or some type of injury, you could have an area of your body that has oxygen deficiency. We call that hypoxia. So if you have a deficiency of oxygen, it's hypoxia. There's an optimum range of oxygen, which for us is virtually almost 100% of our oxygen carrying capacity every minute of every day. And then periodically, we might choose that we want to create a surplus of oxygen because oxygen is the fuel that literally runs our body, right? It helps us detoxify. It controls inflammation. It runs our energy production. I mean, we'll get into all the details, but oxygen is the fuel that we need. And sometimes we might need more than the optimum range to help us get over some sort of health issue. Or like what we, you were referring to earlier, from a, a quality of life, longevity, regenerative medicine type standpoint, that excess oxygen could, could be really magical for people from just from a healing uh, capacity. Yeah, I would disagree with the concept that it's a fuel, though. Uh, it's, it's an important component for the fuel, but the fuel are really the foods that we eat, the carbohydrates primarily and the fats, and they break down essentially to form acetyl-CoA, and right. that gets transferred to the inner mitochondrial membrane through the electron transport chain, which requires oxygen as the ultimate well, the electron. electron right. It's the last electron right. acceptor. Yeah, so if it's not there, you're not going to be able to burn that fuel. And, and essentially, all this right. fuel will back up. So it is, it, is, it is obviously a critical component of the process, and many right. people are depleted. And so why don't you discuss now the reasons why... Uh, or diseases that someone might consider having this treatment done? Because there's quite a number. I mean, these are, there's probably at least a dozen, if not more, that are actually approved, medically approved, but insurance will pay for. Right. So, I mean, you have to look at it from the, from the stand, my opinion, from the standpoint of, you know, healing period. You know, if you want to heal and heal faster than, you know, um, than, than whatever situation someone's in, or, or if, if inflammation or if there's, there's issues, health issues that are really compromising the healing process, any of these concepts would benefit from it. But to go into detail, uh, you know, there are about 14, I think in the States, uh, 14 approved diagnoses. Internationally, I think there's somewhere between 70 and 100 um, actually reimbursable uh, indications for hyperbaric oxygen. But in the States, we reserve it for pretty tough cases, um, really bad infections like gangrene, osteomyelitis, uh, radiation burns, uh, certain neuropathy like diabetic neuropathy is an indication, um, wound, chronic wounds that are, that are not healing or not healing with, uh, with traditional you know, attempts at antibiotics and things like that. So uh, we, we primarily in, in the States, from an insurance standpoint, 
and a, and a hospital standpoint, we really reserve hyperbaric oxygen for uh, cases that aren't responding to whatever typical and traditional treatment would be. Um, outside of that, there's, a, there's an enormous range of you know, people who benefit from hyperbaric oxygen that don't qualify for one of those 14 diagnoses. And, and honestly, if you really look at the physiology behind it, the, the people who benefit from it are similar to those of the 14 indications that are approved, but they're just less severe. So, you know, all kinds of autoimmune conditions benefit from it. Uh, all types of neurologic conditions like uh, concussion and TBI and dementia, um, all types of musculoskeletal injuries, even, you know, broken bones, torn muscles and tendons, disc herniations. I actually got into hyperbaric initially because of a disc herniation that I had. And so if, if the idea is that we need to control inflammation, if we need to improve the rate of healing, you know, if we need to uh, improve mitochondrial function, uh, all of these are, are going to be, you know, very solid indications of people who would respond very positively to, to hyperbaric. You know, but that brings me, I think we should talk about this since we're bringing it up. Different, hyperbaric is a word that describes a therapy of under pressure, but there are different types of chambers too. And, and you would use oh. different types of chambers for different types of conditions. Yeah, well, let, let's delay that discussion because okay. I want to extend this one further. Sure. I think it, it's almost medically reprehensible, inexcusable in malpractice for someone, uh, for a physician, clinician treating a patient with uh, diabetic neuropathy or infections in the distal extremities, peripheral vascular disease, that the patient is a candidate for uh, amputation and doesn't use this as a modality. I mean, you're, you're essentially sacrificing the patient's limbs because of his ignorance. I mean, in your case or your experience, mm -hmm. what percentage, I mean, obviously you have to, ha ideally it's best to have the person metabolically controlled, which doesn't always happen in most diabetics right. because the physicians are clueless in how to treat diabetes. But what percentage of your diabetics are able to avoid uh, an amputation? You know, so we don't, that's not a huge population just in our own personal office. Yeah. Uh, typically we're, you know, hopefully in most cases we're getting to these people well before, you know, we're facing amputation levels. So exactly what you said. I mean, obviously we do, you know, similar work in the vein of, you know, blood sugar control and, and you know, getting their diet in, in check. And so, you know, we're doing a lot of work uh, chemically to try to, uh, to improve their scenario. Uh, but virtually all neuropathies, whether they're early stage diabetics, which we will treat quite a bit of, so they have, they have some loss of sen sensory, they may have some motor loss, but they're not, they're not typically facing amputation. I'd say the, the few dozen of those that we've had, I don't think we've had a case that actually got amputated. So, I mean, the response rate is unbelievably high, but, you know, the other issue is in traditional medicine, utilizing hyperbaric, let's say for a non-healing wound, I don't remember exactly, but for the most part, you need to go through, I believe it's four rounds of increasingly strong antibiotics over the course of, I think, five or six months before you become a candidate for reimbursement for hyperbaric. So, you know, we're talking about a therapy that is basically breathing oxygen under pressure. The, the side effects and consequences are virtually nil. Uh, the people who are uh, contraindicated to go into a chamber are a very small number of people. So it's a, it's a very safe, insanely effective therapy that in many cases, even in those extreme cases, we're delaying patient um, opportunity for, for healing, which, I mean, to your point, it's just, um, you know, it's the state of, I guess, where we are healthcare wise today. Okay. And, and uh, one of the indications you mentioned, which really intrigued me, which is why I actually uh, purchased a chamber myself, is the mitochondrial dysfunction, ability to improve mitochondrial function would be probably be a better way to state it. Uh, which I think is fascinating because in my mind, mitochondrial dysfunction is really one of the fundamental uh, basic de defects that occurs in almost all chronic degenerative disease. So if you can help recover your mitochondria, 
you're going to go a long way just to essentially immunizing yourself against disease. Yeah, I mean, so it, it has it, I mean, there's the, the list of, of effects and benefits of hyperbaric oxygen are long. Uh, mitochondrial uh, changes are definitely a big part of that. You know, a couple of things to, to note. One, we were talking about, you know, the electron, electron transport chain. So, you know, it is the final acceptor of electrons. And so in, in some cases they were wondering, you know, if you improve, when, when we're looking at ATP production, is it, a, is it that we're not getting enough raw materials, the things you were talking about, like medium chain, short chain, uh, uh, fatty acids or is it a glucose issue, right? Are we, are we not dumping enough into the system or can we not get along the, the uh, electron transport chain properly? Or if we had more oxygen at the end of that to accept those final electrons, what are all the implications to improving the efficiency of, you know, mitochondrial ATP production? And so as it turns out, once you expose the body to increased levels of oxygen, the, it's, it's called oxidative phosphorylation, right? So that the whole oxidative phosphorylation, the whole ATP and energy production system of our body increases its capacity to uh, produce ATP than to produce energy. But even more important, which I think is, is critical, especially in these chronic degenerative diseases, is that let's say you could even only get a mitochondria to, you know, maybe 70 or 80% effective. Under, under longer term hyperbaric exposures, the body will actually increase the size of the mitochondria, it'll change the shape of the mitochondria, and it'll increase the density of mitochondria. And so what'll happen after long periods under hyperbaric exposures, more like 20, just to give an idea, that's like 20 hours or 40 hours of, of exposure, mm -hmm. what you're gonna end up getting is you're gonna end up getting more efficient, more uh, bigger mitochondria, and you're going to get a lot more of them. And so even if you're stuck at, let's say, 80% uh, efficiency, if you had twice as many mitochondria producing 80% efficiency, you're still going to get a much better output for, for the patient. So I think the capacity there for improving these chronic illnesses is, is really tremendous. All right, let's, before we go into the way that you administer this, because we've got plenty of time to discuss that. Sure. Uh, I still want to go over the benefits and what it does. And, and uh, there's a few of them that we really haven't t touched on. And one is the microcirculation or the capillary growth in your body, which tends to decrease with time. And by the time you're 50, 60, you start noticing pretty radical decreases in your circulation. And that is uh, a foundational reason why you're going to get sick. Uh, the particular ones of interest to me are the, the ones that supply the satellite stem cells of the type 2 muscle fibers and your muscle just to remind people consumes anywhere from 40 to 60 percent of your tissue in your body so it's a big big player and the reason why the decrease in the the microcirculation to these stem cells is an issue is that you as that decreases over time especially over 60 you lose the ability to gain muscle mass because those stem cells need a blood supply so there, I do some blood flow restriction training. In fact, I, I trained you in it when you were at my house. Yeah. But the, there's only two things that can increase that microcirculation that I'm aware of. One of them is blood flow restriction training. The other is hyperbaric oxygen because it works in the same mechanism. Because when you get out of the chamber, you have actually relative hypoxia, which induces hy hypoxia-inducible factor 1-alpha, or HIF-1-alpha for short. Yeah which then stimulates VEGF, then veg, uh, vascular endothelial growth factor, which is the fertilizer for growing new blood vessels. So to me, that's one of the most exciting aspects, especially with, with, with when it relates to uh, improving the capillary density of the heart and the brain, the two tissues or organs that tend to go out most frequently and contribute to the largest uh, percentage of mor morbidity, I believe, in the population. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think to your point, the, the, the damaged microcirculation. So uh, we're talking about capillary beds and we're talking about in capillary beds, that's where gas exchange occurs, which means that's where the, the circulation system is delivering oxygen to the working tissue. And then the working tissue is dumping the carbon dioxide back into the circulation and, and, and heading out. And so uh, one really important thing to note is that with with almost all chronic inflammation, with almost all trauma, um, with a lot of the, 
the background physiology in chronic illness, there is a tremendous amount of microcirculation damage, which leads to the inability to fuel the tissue so that it can heal and for the ability to carry away the waste products of that tissue so that it doesn't become overinflamed. And so the issue there is that, you know, in the, in the capillary, red blood cells need to line up single file in order to have that gas exchange occur. But when the capillaries are damaged, that can't happen. And I think that's why we see such an accumulation of inflammation and degeneration over time. So the biggest difference here with hyperbaric oxygen is because you're basically dissolving excess oxygen into the plasma of the blood, where there was microcirculation damage, right away, day one, hour one of your first session, you're already increasing perfusion of the tissue because oxygen couldn't get through because the capillaries were damaged, but plasma gets through. And if plasma gets through after a hyperbaric session, that plasma is now carrying oxygen. And now all of a sudden, whatever tissue that was that was damaged, that was literally, you know, hypoxic, is now becoming reperfused with oxygen and all of a sudden starting to heal. That's the short-term version. The long-term version is exactly what you said. As a result of being in a hyperbaric environment, which is hyperoxygen, you're going to increase oxygen levels. And when you get out, you're going to decrease oxygen levels. And that increased decrease of oxygen is what stimulates that HIF-1 that you were talking about and the VEGF. And that's where you get literally regrowth of microcirculation. And so when you're talking about nerve damage, when you're talking about uh, brain trauma, um, when you're talking about wounds, like even uh, internal wounds like Crohn's and colitis, where there's just a tremendous amount of inflammation, there's a tremendous amount of circulatory damage, and this tissue just can't get the oxygen that it needs, this is a complete game changer because it's delivering oxygen through a different mechanism. That mechanism is not stopped by the increased inflammation and decreased uh, uh, capillary perfusion. And so all of a sudden, you're just literally feeding this tissue and waking it up and, and getting it to heal. Well, thanks for expanding on that. And the other uh, benefit that you didn't touch on is the activation of stem cells. And I was skeptical when you first shared this with me. So I looked it up and it's clear and sure enough, it's very clear in the literature. You didn't believe well, me? No, I didn't. I got to double check everything. So <laughs> it's well documented that yeah. this radically improves stem cell activation. And, and, and just, not to people, just to give people a reminder though, stem cell uh, therapy typically is a five figure intervention that's not covered by insurance. So you're going to pay $10,000, $20,000. So why do that when you can do an intervention that's safe and has all these other benefits? It's going to activate your stem cells and probably provide similar, if not even better, overall therapy benefits. Yeah. I mean, so it's not just because we, we were talking about musculoskeletal stem cells. It's also right. Yeah. nervous system well, stem cells. So you can well, literally- Well, I was talking about the microcirculation to increase the function of the existing ones. But yes, right. it also increases other stem cells. Exactly. You know, and so, I mean, in our office, what we would do, we don't do stem cell injections or IV or anything like this, but, you know, through all the other modalities too, with, um, you know, with various fasting techniques, you can change uh, stem cell releases also. So if you, if you, if you go into stem cell therapy where you're going to spend, you know, five, 10, 15, $20,000, but the environment of your body is virtually unchanged it's really hard to get those stem cells to behave in any other way than your, your tissues already behaving. If you actually go through the process where you're, you're, you're correcting all the other biochemistry and you're getting the inflammation under control, and then you're mega dosing oxygen, besides the fact that you're creating an environment internally that's going to support the stem cells, you're already upregulating your own stem cells. And so even if you choose, let's say, to do some type of stem cell therapy, I believe if you upregulate your own stem cell system and then add a layer of stem cells to that, your body's already in the process of getting ready to utilize them. The effectiveness is going to be, you know, tremendously higher. And in a lot of cases, we've seen that, you know, people don't need to do that therapy if they give the oxygen therapy a long enough shot. Yeah. And in my view, it's really irresponsible if you decide for whatever reason that you need stem cell therapy, that's fine. That's your choice. But if you go that route, just go the next step and get some hyperbaric after you have those stem cells injected. 
So what, why don't you just provide your recommendations for someone who is getting a stem cell injections or stem cell therapy as to the frequency and the timing of those hyperbaric treatments? Sure. I mean, so in a perfect world, I'd say you'd spend at least a month or two before stem cell therapy, like oh, understanding, okay. you know, not even just for hyperbaric, just understanding your whole, whatever it's like inflammatory cascade or, or other, you know, chronic illness that you have so that you're, you're already starting to, to shift the internal environment in a way that's going to be conducive to the new cells once they're, once they're injected. Uh, we typically, from an oxygen-only standpoint, uh, I would typically run somewhere between 10 and 20 hours before, because that's where you're going to hit the mark where your body's going to start upregulating its own stem cells. If you're going for stem cell retrieval, so the doc's actually going to pull your own stem cells, if you go through a hyperbaric oxygen, let's say about 20 hours before, your, your retrieval is going to be a much higher retrieval because you've already started to release uh, a lot of your own stem cells. Uh, so usually somewhere between 10 and 20 hours prior to uh, a stem cell therapy, and then definitely a minimum of 20, but usually 40 hours post to really make sure that they're going to be able to take hold and, and do what they need to do to, to change you know, the, the physiology for you. Well, thanks. I didn't realize it was so many. I just thought it might have been a few, but thank you for expanding on that. And that, that pretty much ends what I'd like to discuss on the benefits and the reasons why you'd want to consider it. So hopefully we've intrigued some people enough that they're interested. Well, how do I get this? Right. Before we go into the ways that you can get it, though, I want to talk about a similar therapy that many people confuse with hyperbaric. And that's one that I was actually using for a while, but I stopped since I got my chamber, and that is EWAT which is an acronym for exercise with oxygen therapy, which usually involves using an oxygen concentrator that goes into a large bag, like 50 gallon bag that fills up with oxygen that you breathe in while you're exercising. So why don't you address the differences between those, between hyperbaric and EWAT? Because I suspect many people would have a question about that. Yeah, sure, that's a good question. So to some degree, oxy more oxygen is better most of the time. So, you know, I like EWAT also, but they're very different therapies, and I think that they do very different things, you know, and I think, you know, I've read a lot, especially online, maybe it's in advertising and things, comparing the two. I just, I don't think that they're comparable from the standpoint that they're, they're the model of how they work and what they're ultimately going to deliver are, are very different. And so, just for some comparison's sake, EWAT is exercise with oxygen therapy, so with ex exercise. So EWOT is an active process. Hyperbaric oxygen is a passive process. Hyperbaric oxygen, you're literally typically sitting or laying down and you're just breathing. And so, you know, some, especially in some patient populations, you can't even express the level of, of exercise that you would need to in order to gain some of those benefits. So that's one difference. Uh, but the primary difference I would say is that with EWOT, which is, which is still a great tool from the standpoint of you're increasing demand. So when you exercise, your heart rate goes up and your, respira your respiration rate goes up. So you're breathing heavier and your heart rate's going up. And so what that means is that your body's saying, listen, I need more oxygen, so I'm going to pump faster and breathe harder so I can get turnover of those red blood cells that are carrying the oxygen to the working tissue. So with EWOT, you're basically increasing demand through exercise, and then you're increasing supply through the oxygen concentrator that you were describing. So you have this, you know, this big bag of oxygen. So instead of right now, everybody listening to this, you and I, we're breathing air, which is 21% oxygen. In that concentrator, maybe it's 97%. So now you're sitting on this bike, you're exercising, you're creating a deficiency of oxygen because you're, you're, you're at least creating a demand for more oxygen. And instead of breathing 21% oxygen like you normally do when you exercise, you're going to breathe 97% oxygen. So you're going to have a higher supply. So increased demand, increased supply generally will equal an increased absorption. A big issue, though, is that you're still completely relying on that red blood cell carrying capacity. And so if you have an issue that is trauma-related, that there's chronic inflammation, that there's damage to the microcirculation. A lot of these conversations that you and I have been having so far, there's nothing about that excess oxygen that you're creating through demand, supply and demand 
that's ultimately ever going to change that. The only way you're going to change that environmental issue, and, and especially the microcirculation, the HIF-1, right, the VEGF, all those those pieces that we were talking Dead about. cells. Uh, right. The only way that's going to happen is these like mega doses, these, these exposures to oxygen and pressure. Because what we're finding is that it's not just the level of oxygen absorption. Some of our epigenome is pressure sensitive. And so it's pressure alone increases and decreases in pressure that also stimulates some of this healing response. So, you know, so the biggest difference is one is active, one is passive. Um, one is still relying on red blood cell carrying capacity. One is basically bypassing red blood cell carrying capacity. Uh, to some degree, they're both increasing oxygen, but I don't think you could really compare it. I mean, hyperbaric is definitely increasing oxygen capacity uh, to a degree that's pretty significantly higher than anything else that exists. Okay. Just, just a slight comment on the 97%. It's probably closer to 93% because... It depends on the rate. Yeah, it depends on the rate. Yeah, it, normally, you crank it up to 10 liters per minute, typically the concentrators they use. And the higher you crank it up, the, the less... Less oxygen, oxygen. exactly. So, but probably 93%, which is still significantly higher than the 21% in the air. Right. But an, another thing I wanted to go on before we go into the, type, the types of chambers that are available and how one would access them is the issue of treating infection. And you touched on it briefly with diabetics, but it's not just diabetic infections. This is just pretty much any infections because there are so many of us who have these chronic infections. Lyme would be the classic example. So I'd like you to discuss how the hyperbaric therapy can be useful for these chronic infections. And in my review of longevity research, it seems that the older you get, the higher the likelihood of the, that's these infections that are going to take you out. It's not necessarily heart attacks or the, or the cancers. It's these infections. These subacute infections ultimately leading to other brain, heart, circulatory right. Right. damage. And so for the most part, I think to summarize that component, and I mean, think about it as, as something as terrible as gangrene. Mm -hmm. You know, these are... Uh, these are anaerobic infections. Anaerobic infection means that these are bacteria that live in zero oxygen environments and they actually thrive. The lower the oxygen, the, the more they thrive. So they're, that's an anaerobic versus, let's say a lot of our probiotics, like the good bacteria in our body are either aerobes, they like, they like oxygen, or they're at least oxygen tolerant. And so with a lot of these pathogens, Lyme being one, uh, C. diff, they're doing some research on now too. A lot of these pretty tough pathogens that are anaerobic, they don't tolerate the high oxygen environment. And so when you go into these pressurized hyperbaric chambers and you're breathing and absorbing these higher levels of oxygen, they literally act as a natural antibiotic. They, they help to, they do two things simultaneously. They help to kill the anaerobic bacteria because they can't tolerate those high levels. Um, they also, the, the high oxygen environment helps to break down some of the biofilms that a lot of these anaerobes use to protect themselves. But at the same time, they're literally feeding and helping your own immune system, whether that's through increased neutrophil and macrophage stimulation, or that's through literally feeding you know, the, the healthy bacteria, the other part of our immune system, so that you know, the parts of our body, the, the, the white blood cells and the probiotics are going to thrive. They're going to do really well. and You're going to get a little stronger on your immune system yourself. You're also going to help kill, you know, the anaerobes, the pathogens that are, you know, the responsible for a lot of this, these subacute infections. Oh, well, you address the bacteria, but I'm particularly intrigued with the viruses, which may be even more of a pervasive threat because they're not aerobic, facultative aerobic or anaerobic. They're dependent because they thrive inside the cell they're infecting. So the only way that you're going to address that is somehow improving and stimulating the immune system. Can you Stimulate so your own immune system, right. Yeah, so can you discuss that? Yeah, so I, I was hinting at it before, but there's a, there's a very strong, um, again, two sides of the, of the coin. One, you're going to have a, a very strong effect on the, the standard uh, cytokine cascade, the, the inflammatory cascade that our body goes through uh, during certain either you know, traumas or infections. So there's going to be a decrease in you know, IL-1, 6A, TNF-alpha. You're also at the same time going to get a massive increase in neutrophil and macrophage stimulation. And so you're literally going to stimulate an increased production of white blood cells that 
that's what our body uses to fight infection. So the, the aerobe anaerobe thing affects bacteria, but I would say also uh, a lot of different mold and uh, fungal infections. And, and between mold, fungus, and virus, you're going to see an effect, I think, globally from the massive increase in you know, white blood cell stimulation from a body fighting infection standpoint. Okay, so I think we've laid the groundwork to provide a very intriguing argument for the benefits of receiving hyperbaric oxygen chambers. So now we can address how does one receive it. And the, the br brief short summary is a soft shell, soft shell chamber, which you can easily purchase to get in your home. I mean, not easily, but it's doable, or hard shell chamber, which is less easy. So why don't you discuss the differences and the benefits of each, because uh, there's a lot of confusion on this. Yeah, sure. I'm going to start on the other end of the spectrum, the, the more invasive, and I'll go to the least invasive. Sure. Uh, so those 14 indications that we were talking about that are insurance reimbursable, some of those are also topical, like the gangrene and the, um, the, the radiation burns, like severe radiation burns or um, uh, necrotizing fasciitis, you know, where you're in the hospital now. Flesh-eating bacteria. What? Yeah. <laughs> those, those chambers are hard chambers, and all that means is that they're capable of higher pressure. So in those cases, you might be going well beyond even two atmospheres, three atmospheres, even beyond. And the chamber itself is literally being filled with 100% oxygen. So the way that the chamber is being pressurized is with, with oxygen. Now, that process, which is really primarily delivered in a hospital setting, sometimes that level of pressure and that level of oxygen for those really tough cases is important. And sometimes having the fact that the body is literally soaking in oxygen because that's the, the only air in that chamber is literally 100% oxygen. So sometimes that's meaningful, especially if it's a non-healing topical wound of some kind. Now, in those chambers, uh, you know, oxygen, it's not really flammable. It's an accelerant, but, you know, you have to be very careful with sparks. So you're wearing, you know, cotton scrubs and you can't bring anything inside the chamber. And there's, you know, all kinds of you know, regulations around that because there are certain safety concerns when you're looking at that type of chamber. The next version down would be a hard chamber, but instead of filling the whole hard chamber with oxygen, you're using air to create pressure and then you're piping oxygen in separately so that you could breathe oxygen, whether that's through a concentrator or through medical grade green tank oxygen but the ambient oxygen in the chamber doesn't really exceed, you know, mid thirties to low forties. And so you don't really ever get to a point where uh, the inside environment is a safety hazard. And so you don't have, you can wear basically whatever clothing you want. Uh, you know, people do bring electronics if they want into the chamber, you could bring a book. The, the restrictions are much lower. Uh, the safety is much higher, but the effectiveness of the treatment is identical especially for most internal issues and the know, costs are lower, you know, things like that. So right. um, those types of chambers are pretty readily available in, in, in private clinics. And so you can go to a private clinic and, and get that type of treatment. And, and then there's soft chambers. So soft chambers are limited in terms of pressure in the U S you're only allowed to go to 1.3 atmospheres, uh, which is about relative 15 feet underwater, 12 to 15 feet. And, it's not very high, it's about four, four and a half PSI. So, um, but you can still absorb quite a bit more oxygen in that chamber than you could, you know, standing here having this conversation. So it's still meaningful. It might mean that in certain cases you're gonna do uh, more frequency, uh, longer duration. The way we look at it in the office is oxygen, pressure, and minutes. Those are the three variables. So you can increase or decrease pressure, you can increase or decrease your percentage of oxygen, and you can increase the length of the actual treatment itself. And so, you know, in a hard chamber with 100% oxygen, you might not need as much, or you could do it a little less frequent, depending on the condition. With a soft chamber, with, with an oxygen concentrator, let's say, maybe you're just going to end up doing more frequent treatments, you know, more often longer duration, maybe, you know, 90 minute or two hour sessions instead of 60 minute sessions, that kind of a thing. Um, there are certain conditions like infections, um, 
especially sometimes with an acute Lyme, let's say, or a C. diff. Uh, there, there are certain doctors who, let's say with stem cells, really believe that higher pressure is really important. So there are certain conditions where that, you know, uh, just to give you an idea, so the soft chambers go to 1.3 in, the, in, a, in an office like ours, we might use 1.3 for certain issues, 1.5, 1.75. We don't really ever go above two. We'll treat some people at two atmospheres, so which is about 33 feet underwater. So, but um, you know, in those chambers, there there are certain conditions that it's you're better off being in a clinical environment to get those treated. And then there are a lot of conditions that if all you had access to was a 1.3 with a concentrator, you could still make a lot of progress. Especially, I would say. Uh, neurologic conditions like concussion and TBI, um, autism, autism, exactly. So uh, CP, you know, there are a lot of chronic, either degenerative or developmental or traumatic types of neurologic conditions that they respond really, really well to 1.3 atmospheres with a with an oxygen concentrator. Yeah, I think one of the conditions we neglected to mention is one that's killing, I believe, close to 1,700 people every day in the United States, and that's cancer. Right. So uh, obviously not approved for cancer, but certainly there are a, a large number, perhaps even majority of natural medicine clinicians who, who focus on treating cancer that integrate this into their protocols. Yes. So, and then depending on the research, so uh, a lot of the research of recent has been done uh, by Thomas Seyfried, uh, specifically on glioblastomas. And uh, you know, that type of therapy is, is typically done at two atmospheres, 100% oxygen. So you're looking at sort of that, I'm going to a clinic for that, and I'm, and I'm using that as a tool for, um, let's say, a pretty aggressive tumor. Uh, higher pressure, higher percent oxygen. At the same time, again, this is about healing. So we've had patients uh, in our office that we've, that we've worked with or uh, other patients that we come into contact with or other doctors, because we're, we're in touch with a lot of clinics across the country, where it's not even that some of them are using it as a method to help with the, you know, or augment the, the cancer treatment itself. And, and some are using it as a way to, again, heal. So there are consequences of chemotherapy and there are consequences of radiation and it doesn't have to be third degree burns. And so even if you're just looking at it from the standpoint of uh, a recovery tool to help, you know, the idea with most cancer treatments, I'm sure you would agree is, you know, we're trying to get more selective in which cell type we're killing, but you know, we're trying to kill cells and hopefully the person survives that process. Well, if you're, if you're augmenting with hyperbaric oxygen simultaneously, the, the idea is that you're also helping to heal the tissue so that the healthy tissue can still survive or, or even higher percentages of healthy tissue can, can survive, even thrive, even though we're getting treatment on, let's say the other side of, with, with chemotherapy or radiation. So I think there's a few different ways, even, even in traditional medicine, which is really interesting now, you're looking at this a couple of different ways in, in the research. Uh, one is to say, listen, if we're doing hyperbaric simultaneously, on one end, could the patient get away with less radiation and less chemo and get the same outcome. So that's, that's one avenue of research that's looking very positive. Another avenue that they're looking at is to say, you know, in some cases they might say, well, I wish we could do more radiation, but the patient can't tolerate it. And so one of the avenues that they're looking at is to say, well, if they're doing hyperbaric oxygen simultaneous with their radiation, can they recover in between sessions faster? And can they tolerate more so that they could get the therapy that they feel they need on the radiation side at the level that they feel they want to use it because the hyperbaric is helping them heal, you know, in between sessions. And then the last way would be, Hey, what is hyperbaric doing on cancer all by itself? And, you know, what are the benefits and can we use that as a primary tool in in treatment for cancer. So those are three totally separate avenues. Yeah, let me just com comment on the last one. And the sure. reason why it's focused on, on that is cancer cells, for the most part, rely primarily on a very primitive form of energy generation called anaerobic fermentation, which right. typically occurs in bacteria, where you've got the sugar coming in, the sugar molecule breaking down to pyruvate, then pyruvate, instead of going into acetyl-CoA and then being shuttled to the mitochondria with oxygen to create energy, goes directly to lactate 
far less efficient way to create ATP, but that process does not require oxygen. So these cells are relatively sensitive to oxygen toxicity, so that if you can get them deprived of glucose, which is their primary method, but also glutamine, which is another strategy that Dr. Seifert uses, mm -hmm. and hit them with oxygen, yours is like one, two punch. And of course, there's a lot of other, other modalities that can be integrated into that equation, but that's a powerful synergy. Right. I mean, I think back when we got started, we, we've been doing this for, I think, about 12 years. There was a really big concern back then that, hey, if you're increasing blood vessel growth, is that going to stimulate cancer? Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot of uh, pushback on, you know, even even supplementing hyperbaric oxygen with cancer patients. And exactly what you said. I mean, it, it's turning out that, yes, you get angiogenesis, you get more capillaries, but, you know, these tumors aren't growing uh, more blood vessels to get more oxygen. They're growing more blood vessels to get more sugar. So if you can get the the blood glucose levels balanced out, exactly what you were describing. So if you can create a glucose deficiency, right, and you can create an oxygen surplus, I mean, literally, these cells are not, they're not adaptive, right? Most of our cells should be able to tolerate different fuel sources, different oxygen uh, levels, and still be able to live. These cancer cells are, are pretty primitive, they're pretty weak, they just need the right combination. So if you deprive them of glucose and you, and you massively increase their oxygen, they literally can't live in that environment. And so that's the, that's the strategy behind a lot of the cancer treatment. And it seems to be showing really a lot of positive results on, on really aggressive tumors. And so similarly, I think we'll find through the research as well, but we see it clinically already, that that same concept would be true for even less aggressive tumors. Yeah. So let's get back to the chambers because I want to refine some of the details you mentioned. You talked about the 100% oxygen chamber, which has its intrinsic challenges and can potentially ignite and explode like it did in Apollo 1 where they killed the three astronauts on the first Apollo spacecraft. Mm -hmm. um, almost identical situation. I, I don't know if it was pressurized, but it was 100% oxygen for sure. So that is an expensive process and typically as you mentioned typically done in the hospital and the range for that treatment per session is about 400 bucks or so and, may, and i'll let you describe it it's, it's much more than that. i think in general hospitals get uh close to two thousand or more per hour okay <laughs> well i was thinking more of private clinics but if you're in a hospital of course okay. everything's exploded right. and that's just the nature of the beast right but it's very expensive but if you go to a private clinician it's going to be closer to 400 like yourself but it but if you take the less risky and just to use a concentrator or even a green tank oxygen it, that you're breathing in instead of 100 percent oxygen you eliminate the explosive potential and you also radically reduce the cost like closer to a hundred dollars per session right. and so then if somebody like we'll go there and then we'll go into the soft chambers sure across the country i, I mean it, it ranges but you know soft chambers or hard chambers not piping in 100% oxygen, the range is probably anywhere from, you know, as low as 90 to probably about $180 an hour. Mm -hmm. And most clinics, like even ours, if somebody's going to do, because very few people come in and do one session. I mean, for most- Yeah, it, it doesn't make sense to do one session. Right. So you're going to do 20 or 40 sessions. So, you know, then there, you know, it gets down closer to like the 120 range uh, pretty consistently for, for multiple sessions, 130, something like that. Um, so yeah, it becomes a lot more reasonable uh, because safety is much higher and you know exa exactly what you mentioned. Yeah, so for literally, I mean, in many cases it's not covered. There's only 14 limited cases in the United States. It's different worldwide, of course, where it's not where it's covered by your insurance company. But even if you're paying out of pocket. I mean, it's crazy. Literally, for a few thousand dollars, you have a life-changing modality that exceeds the potential of most conventional recommendations and strategies for your illness. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's, I know some people can't afford that, but it's in the bud budget. And certainly the complications of not having your treat, illness treated properly, right. and the side what's, effects from the- what's, from the- what's the cost of not getting better, right? That's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's probably far exceeds the cost of the therapy. Right. You know, so, clinically, right. we used to only, we used to do whatever else, you know, there's a lot of different things that we're running in our office. So we used to, you know, do our typical protocols. And when people weren't responding the way we expected them to, we would introduce hyperbaric oxygen. At this point, it's become literally one of the first things that we do, because if we do that early on, 
so many of the other therapies that we used to have to do, we don't need to do anymore. Yeah, yeah, it's just, it's a really effective intervention and one that is somewhat novel with respect to anti-aging strategies and longevity, but medicine. But there's, a, there's groups in Israel, which I believe is the, are the leaders in this, and they have these, what's called multi-place chambers, we'll have 10, 20, 30 people fitting in one chamber, breathing the oxygen under the pressure. So, and they're doing a lot of the, the longevity research out there. They're doing a lot of the research and, and they have waiting lists beyond waiting lists of people to use it for that, just for longevity, a regenerative medicine type standpoint. So let's go to the soft chambers now, because I think that is a, something that many people may want to consider. And I want you to discuss those because within the soft chambers, uh, there's two types. You mentioned that the FDA in the United States has restricted the pressure to 1.3 atmospheres, which is still reasonable, but there are some soft chambers that can with, withstand 1.5 atmospheres, which is a more ideal concentration and probably there's very few conditions that would need more than that. And if you have a, if you have a chamber that can go up to that level, there's actually a little simple hack that's not legal, but you can talk to the, to the manufacturer of the valve, but you can actually get a replacement valve to let that 1.3 go to 1.5. And it's certainly- If they're built. Some of them, so just to clarify that, a Yeah, lot. you have to have, it has to go up to 1.5, not all right. A lot of them aren't even built to even do that. So yeah. definitely wouldn't recommend that, obviously, for those. Um, but listen, you know, again, there's the US and then there's the rest of the world. So- Yeah, yeah. You know, in the rest of the world, they make soft chambers that go to two atmospheres. So it's it's a it's a possibility to to exceed what we're doing. There's a there's a limitation in the FDA to say uh, soft chambers, technically anything 1.4 and below, I think is considered a you know a soft chamber. And so you know, but yes, uh, so soft chambers are capable of 1.3 in the states today legally. And, um, and even that again, the difference between 1.3 and 1.5, there's a difference definitely, but um, you know, especially for anti-aging or regenerative medicine, especially for those neurologic conditions that we were talking about before, whether it's from trauma or chronic illness, uh, they respond really well. And the thing is this, you know, even if you're traveling, even if you live a town or two away from, let's say a clinic like mine, if you're doing four to six hours a week, you're coming to visit me like three, four five days a week sometimes. Even if you're local, that's not very convenient. So to some degree, people choose to do the soft chambers because they could have those in their house. And then it doesn't matter if they're doing 90 minute or two hour sessions because, you know, they're saving time, you know, not driving back and forth. So for some people, it's just a convenience matter. And, and for other people, it's just what they can, you know, get access to. But, you know, there's, there's still a tremendous, I mean, a tremendous amount of benefit. You know, uh, some of the researchers, even in the States, they started doing this research and I think it was Russia at first. I mean, they're doing research on 1.1, 1.2. And so they're starting to show some research even in the States now where some TBI cases, you know, they're even looking at lower pressure like 1.2 uh, because the, the body the, the body has to react to the pressure and the oxygen. And so to some degree, this 1.1 to 1.3 range, it almost allows the pressure to be unregistered but the oxygen levels to still go up. And so there's almost no, um, no guard. The body doesn't put a guard up. Like if you go to two atmospheres, hundred percent oxygen, you get a, a decent amount of vasoconstriction right away. And so at 1.3, let's say with or without a concentrator, there's, I don't think there's any actually uh, vasoconstriction or if there is, it's minimal. And so you're almost able to right. sit in. So why, why don't you talk about the downsides of vasoconstriction? Because to me, that is, it would sound like a negative, but it might be a positive because it's, it's almost like exercise. You're constricting and afterwards you expand or dilate. Right. There's, so, there's two pieces. Like if, if, if somebody had a blood loss anemia, which hyperbaric is also fabulous for, or any type of anemia. I mean, obviously anemia's consequence has a lot to do with oxygen. So, but if you have a blood loss anemia and you have leaky vessels, um, that vasoconstriction is actually really helpful. It actually helps to control the amount uh, of leakiness of those broken blood vessels. So there are times where that vasoconstriction is, is beneficial. Also, like we talked about the HIF-1, the hypoxic and inducible factor, that 
sometimes it's just exactly what you said, bouncing back and forth um, allows for uh, an epigenetic change that's also beneficial. So having some vasoconstriction, vasodilation, vasoconstriction, you know, in certain cases, you might run uh, red light therapy to get nitric oxide dumping so that you, you could even contrast um, vasoconstriction versus vasodilation that way. So there are benefits to it. At the same time, to some degree with vasoconstriction, you, you could also decrease some of the oxygen that's ultimately ending up wherever it's going. And so uh, for some of these chronic, especially chronic neurologic diseases, if the body doesn't recognize it and it puts up very little, if any, defense against it, the amount that could be absorbed into the needing tissue would be really high. Okay, good. You know, another, another tissue, well, not tissue, but another condition that we didn't really touch on is post-stroke. And it's that same yeah. constant, right? So if you had a stroke of any kind, you're going to have a centralized, you know, area of tissue damage, but then you get that whole surrounding area that, that virtually becomes dormant. And it's that same idea with, with the microcirculation damage, the tissue doesn't get enough oxygen to wake up and, and perform tasks. But as soon as you start flooding it through the plasma, you get enough oxygen where literally that area that was surrounding the stroke just starts to shrink. And you can yeah. measure that on a spec scan. They've done a lot of research on that. You could watch brain metabolism and you could watch areas of, of little or no metabolism at all completely regain normal function uh, after exposures. To the, yeah, I think it's crazy post-stroke not to integrate that into the equation. And I think I mean, what you're referring to is po uh, reperfusion injury, right. which, which also has application for post-MI. Yeah. So for stroke I mean, and for MI. Thanks. I mean, not only, they've done research on six months to I think three years post and they get great results with all of that. Uh, what they're starting to look at now is how quickly can we actually implement it safely and, and actually minimize, you know, some of the consequences in the first place. So, I mean, they're, what, what is the new research show? What, catching up. How soon can you start? Yeah. No stroke. How quickly? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, clinically, okay. In the research, I could say, we don't know yet. I would say the, the sooner the better, and if, you, if you're safe about it, in other words, you don't go post-stroke, right, to, you know, two and a half atmospheres, 100% oxygen, right? So you, you build that up, you know, slowly, but the sooner you can get that level of oxygen into the, into the body, the better that's going to be. So, you know, I think they're looking at trying to define exactly where that line is. I would say that most commonly, you have someone who has a stroke, they end up going through some type of really intensive, let's say hospital type, you know, therapy, then they end up in some type of outpatient therapy. There is no hospital that will, that I know of that will implement HBOT. So they're not getting it there. Then they go to eight, then they go to outpatient and we get a lot of phone calls from people in outpatient saying, Hey, can we get into, into the chamber or can we get a chamber, you know, brought to the outpatient? We have not found one that will let us bring a soft chamber to them. And only if they have transportation, you know, can they get to and from. So it's typically usually somewhere between that three month on where people are now home. They're still getting some therapies, but they're really stuck in terms of their progress where they really start reaching out and trying to look at what other opportunities or options they have. And that's where most people, I would say that we get into contact with are able to begin a meaningful uh, regimen of hyperbaric oxygen. Yeah. To, uh, to me, that's another area of medical negligence that uh, this needs to be integrated in almost all post-stroke rehabilitation. So I mean, as yeah, really good point. In the hospital. As early as possible, yeah. So I, I, I'd like to actually address the issue of the oxygen concentrators. And I, the typical concentrator puts out oxygen at about 93, 95%, but at a minimum, a limited pressure, right, which I think is throttled by the FDA in the United States. So I forget the specific, but it's like one and a half atmospheres, which would be like 14 PSI. Is it? Is, uh, is it? Uh, not even. So. Oh, it's 10? 10 PSI? I think it's 10. Okay, 10. So that, that is a, not a meaningful number. So the reason it may sound like a, a, an obtuse tangent, but it isn't. Because if you are piping oxygen in through a concentrator, not medical grade oxygen, which is a totally different story, but through a concentrator, the higher the atmospheric pressure you have, the less oxygen that's coming in. Unless you bypass the FDA, go to China and get, get an oxygen concentrator like we did that goes up to 100 PSI, we'll, we'll feed that to chamber at even three atmospheres. Right. Yeah. So 
you know, for, uh, so they make oxygen, con even in the U.S., they make oxygen concentrators, I want to say even up to probably closer to 18 to 20 PSI, which you could use theoretically up to almost two atmospheres, maybe yeah. 1.75, really. Um, but they're only made for fish ponds. <laughs> they're not made for, for medical grade usage. So they're not FDA, like you said, they're not FDA approved for, uh, for medical usage. And so uh, you really can't use them in, in our setting that way. Um, and yeah, most likely similar to the idea that, uh, that the soft chambers, although capable of more, are limited to 1.3 or 1.4. The oxygen concentrators are also limited to about 10 PSI um, at 10 liters. So to get a, you know, I, I think it's literally impossible to get a 30 or 40 liter um, concentrator, which is what you would run. You know, the medical oxygen that we'll, we could run into the chambers, will typically run at closer to 30 uh, liters per minute at, you know, 20 PSI or, or more if we need, or, you know, 40 PSI we need to. So, you know, uh, but yeah, it's a limitation of uh, what's allowed, you know, yeah, regulation. Okay. So um, I think probably the next step is to help pe guide people through the process of identifying a center close to them that can provide this treatment and maybe even discuss some of the options they could look at for purchasing. But most people, you don't have to purchase one. You can just easily find one close to your house. But then you do run into the inconvenience aspect because this is, you're looking probably at a minimum of 40 treatments. And you know, if you're in, considering this for a longevity program, it's pretty much a lifelong program. So right. then it might I, make What I would typically say to people is that, you know, you do a regimen in a, in a clinic if you have access to it. Mm -hmm. um, certain issues, think about it like if it's a disease that has a beginning and an end or if it's trauma, any trauma like even TBI and concussion or disc herniation, whatever benefits you get from the therapy you keep versus like a degenerative disease like a dementia or a, uh, an autoimmune condition or if like what you're saying, you're using it more from like a regenerative standpoint, that's going to be something you're going to use ongoing for long periods of time then you should own one. But, you know, if it's something that you just want to see, hey, how am I going to, how am I going to do, am I going to respond to this? Most, most treatments, you would start to see changes around 10 hours. Um, you know, so somewhere between 10 and 20 hours, you kind of know if it's a good fit for you. And then from that point, you can kind of, you know, with guidance of the practitioner, you should be able to figure out, you know, a baseline of what your protocol should look like. It's really more uh, either you don't have access to it, you can't get to it, or like, there's not any, any center near you, or the issue that you're trying to uh, work on for yourself, for your family, is something that's degenerative in nature, and ultimately you're going to be using this thing you know, for years and years, then you're better off in most cases just to, to have your own. Okay. Um, well, guide people through the process of finding a, a high quality local center because what do they need to look out for? What do they need to do? So it's really, unfortunately, it's really hard I, it, for most places. If you Google hyperbaric oxygen therapy in your area, whatever hospital near you is what's going to pop up. Well, you will probably won't find, yeah, probably nothing now because Google essentially banned all natural health practice. So just use an alternative search engine. <laughs> so, but the hospitals, if you're not one of, even if you had cash and you wanted to pay them, hospitals will not treat you if you don't have one of the 14 um, FDA approved indications. And so, you know, that we get a lot of those types of phone calls where someone's saying, do you treat this? Because I've called four places and nobody will treat this. And, and, and primarily that's just because in the hospital setting, they just they, they treat the 14 indications and pretty much nothing else. Um, to, find a, to, to find a center, you're, you're, really, you're just gonna be looking up hyperbaric oxygen. You're gonna be looking for, uh, you know, in the private sector, because those are the only people who are going, you know, outside the hospital who are gonna, um, to treat these other indications. I would say that the, um, the IHA, the International Hyperbaric Association, and the HMI, Hyperbaric Medical International, those are the two big organizations in the U.S., and you know they're they're basically in like a nonprofit groups that are in charge of helping educate the public on the use of hyperbaric oxygen, specifically um, for indications that aren't the 14 typical 
um, FDA approved. And uh, so they have a tremendous amount of resources uh, and, and they also probably help direct people, I'm almost sure of it, uh, to, to be able to find centers that they know of that might be more local to them in their area. Um, so, I mean, that's probably the best. And then otherwise, like I said, you, you, you'd be looking at, um, you know, different manufacturers that produce chambers and, and how to get those into your home. Okay. And if someone was interested in seeing you locally, which, you know, if they live clo close to where you're at, where's your clinic at? What's its name? Uh, so it's uh, New Jersey HBOT. And then we also have one in Philly. So PA, uh, Pennsylvania hyperbaric and New Jersey hyperbaric okay. um, are, are two of our clinics. All right. Well, great. Well, you've certainly been a mentor to me and helped me understand this valuable uh, therapy that I think more people need to be aware of. And I think you've provided us with a pretty comprehensive uh, understanding of the benefits of this and then some of the ways that it can be administered. So I greatly appreciate your, your uh, conversation. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate your time, Doc. All right.